Hey, I'm Pastor Chris, and the teaching or conversation that you're about to hear is from the student ministry at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. If you have any questions or you'd like to get into contact with us, please visit us on our website at cedarcrest.church forward slash students. Now I pray that God would use this resource to richly bless you in your walk with him. what a trial is. I'm not talking about the trials like in the book of James, okay? A trial, like a legal trial. Okay, most of you understand how, what a trial is, right? Okay, typically someone is charged with committing a crime, okay? They're caught in the act, there's evidence, or they're charged, etc. And they are brought before a judge and often a jury. That's how the U.S works, a jury of their peers, and there are typically people who support the victim and people who support the defendant. The defendant's the person that's on trial, okay? Things can get emotional, things can get tight, there can be a lot of tension, but regardless of what either side wants, right, whether you're on the side of the defendant or on the side of the ones prosecuting the defendant, the question I have for you is, does truth matter? Yes or no? Truth matters, right? Like what actually happened matters. In our judicial system, in order to reach a truthful verdict, obviously in a broken and human system, you have to go through a whole process. It's not perfect, but for years has worked pretty well. Obviously there's corruption in it, but overall it works pretty well. Witnesses are called to testify. Okay, those who watched the crime happen, those who knew where the defendant might have been while the crime was happening, people in authority, all these types of things are called to testify, to bear witness to the event or to the person charged with committing the event. Based on those, these reported testimonies, the jury and the judge, they listen, and then at the end they make a verdict, right? They pronounce a verdict. And those two verdicts are what? Guilty or not guilty, right? We pray it's the right verdict so that there can be a right sentence. A few weeks ago... We saw that Jesus Christ of Nazareth asserted his divine equality with the Father. He made this explicitly clear, all right? If you ever argue with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon about John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, which is bad Greek. But if they say, oh, okay, that's what that says, say, fine, let's look what Jesus says about himself, all right? In John chapter 5, uh, what we saw several weeks ago, I think it's John 5, 19 through t- uh, 29, Jesus asserts that he is equal with the Father in his divinity. All right? He claimed to be equal with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He expounded on this relationship with the Father to explain that he's not another God, but that he is one with God. Okay? If you're going to try to ever wrap your mind around this, don't. Your mind will explode. Okay? He explains this by saying, everything I do is what the Father does. I only do what the Father does, but I do everything the Father does. So he is equal with the Father. He also asserted, not only does he have divine equality with the Father, he has divine authority from the Father. Here's what he says. I have authority to give life. I have authority to give you life. Come to me, I'll give you life. He also says this. I have authority to judge. I have authority to judge you. 
And if you refuse me, I will judge you on the last day. Those who have done evil to damnation and those who have done good, which we see in the Gospel of John, doing good is believing on Christ to the resurrection of life. This is a massive claim to say, I am God. I have God's power. I have God's authority. I have the power to forgive sins. If I said that to you, what would be your reaction? Yeah, okay. I'm getting a big thumbs down over here. All right. I hope so. I hope you'd all leave. Or better yet, tell the elders. For a man to say he is God is ridiculous. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just do this and drop the mic and walk away. He's saying, and what we see all throughout the Gospel of John, his whole life, his whole ministry, his whole accomplishment, and many, many things more that we're going to see tonight all validate this bold claim by the Son of God. So... He backs it up and he brings his own witnesses to the stand. And before you think, just for a moment here, because I want you to pay attention to this. Before you think that in this text, that Jesus is the one on trial and you're his judge. And there's witnesses being called to testify to you like you're the judge. Think again. He's already proclaimed himself as the judge. We're on trial. Do we believe the truth or do we believe the lie about Jesus? And he's calling witnesses to bear witness against us if we do not have genuine belief. So Jesus is never on trial. He's the Lord of glory. He is the judge and he reminds us of that. So the question tonight, young person, that we're being on trial for, do we believe his claim? Do we believe him? And do we live lives in accordance with who he is? So now let's read together as he calls these witnesses to the stand and cross-examines our hearts. And we're going to see this as he does this with the Pharisees. So we're going to read John chapter 5, excuse me, beginning in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that's kind of a a bridge from our last passage. Now look at, he starts, he talks about the witnesses. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true or sufficient. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, talking about John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay. So these are like, I don't necessarily like um, Bibles that put Jesus' words in red because all of Scripture is Jesus' words. All right? But if you look at chapter 5, if you have one of those Bibles, the whole thing is red. Because this is Jesus giving testimony about himself and then also making his case. So I want us to look at, in verse 30, the son's conclusion of his own testimony. All right? Like I said, this is the transition verse. We see this echoes verse 19. He completes the section where he's asserted his divine uh, equality uh, with the father and authority from the father. And these are his assertions that he made. I am your God. I am your source of life. I am or ought to be your object of worship. I am your savior. I am your judge. Jesus' authority, he says, is Trinitarian, all right? It's not just from him. Verse 30, he says, my authority comes from the Father. I submit to the Father. I submit to his judgment. And I, and I judge selflessly. Jesus is not out there for his own gain apart from God. He's judging us rightly. Judging us rightly. But the religious leaders did not believe Jesus' claims that we just read. And he leaves them that he is their judge. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe Jesus's claims? Jesus says that if the only evidence to his claim was himself, then that would be insufficient to convince his audience as to his identity. But Jesus presents the testimony of all testimonies. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Better read sufficient. All right. If that's the case, then, yeah, you have a right to be To question me, per se, perhaps. But then in verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The person that Jesus is talking about right here is God the Father. God the Father himself. The God who created the world. Who destroyed it with a flood. The God who called Noah, who called Abraham, who chose Israel, who delivered Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand. This God who the Jews worship or claim to worship and follow. Jesus says, this is the one who bears witness about me. Not just some man, but the one that you claim to worship yourselves. And we see now that that God has borne witness to Christ in many different ways. We're going to look at the very first one. The first thing, the first way the Father bears witness to Jesus is that the Father sent John the Baptist. All right? He sent John the Baptist is what we see in this text, verses 33 through 35. He says to the Jews, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may believe. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now we see in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, it says, Now there was a man sent from who? God. So John didn't decide one day to just bear witness about some Messiah that he figured out. God himself spoke to John. 
And we actually know that God actually told John, the one that you see, the spirit descending like a dove. That's the one you're to bear witness about. It's Jesus himself. And John, while the religious leaders were there, he tells them, he told them, we saw this a couple months ago. He told them this, there is one who comes after me. He doesn't baptize with water, but he baptizes with the spirit. He says the the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's the one who's coming after me. And then when he saw Jesus coming, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's him. He's right there. And the Jews heard what he said. John came, comes preaching to prepare Israel for their Messiah. And here's what Jesus is saying. You sent to John. You went to see what he was about and you heard what he said. And guess what? John told you the truth. He didn't deceive you. And then he says, he was a burning and shining lamp. Let me ask you this question. Do burning and shining lamps, do you think of that word and then if you're thinking of a synonym, you go, fuzziness, darkness, unclear. Do you think of that when you hear those words? No, you think of brightness, right? If you can't read, you turn a what on? A light. And he says, John was a burning and shining lamp, being as clear as day about who I was, who I am. And here's what Jesus says. John came for your benefit, not mine. Verse 34, he's like, I didn't need a man to tell tell me who I am. He didn't come for me. He came for your benefit. Why? So that you might be saved. That you might believe who the Messiah is and trust in him. I, don't, I didn't need his testimony. His testimony was from you, for, for you. My testimony is from a greater source. God had graciously sent John the Baptist to his people, the Jews, so that they would recognize their Messiah, place their faith in him, and have eternal life. That was why John came. And John was clear. John was abundant in his testimony. His testimony was true. And his, his testimony was sufficient to prepare them. We see that in verse 5, burning and shining lamp. And he accomplished his mission. And here's the thing. Catch this. The Jews rejoiced for a while. You see that in the text? You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They were excited. Ah, Messiah's here. Great. And then we're going to see as they get to know what Messiah is up to. What Messiah is like, they're less excited. It fades. The parable of the sower, right? Where the seed falls on uh, the path and it's swept away immediately, like from a bird. It falls among the stony ground. It's shallow. It falls among the thorns and then the good soil. And only the good soil is a genuine heart that trusts in Christ. These other two in the middle, they sprout up and receive the word with joy. But then when... You know, the cares of this world and the riches and the allurements of the world come or trials come. They ditch the word. They prove to not be true. Once these Pharisees found out who Jesus really was, was, he was the son of God, but he wasn't the son of God they wanted. Done. John is the first witness sent by God and was an effective instrument. He was not the source of truth about Jesus. He was the messenger. Second We see the way that God has shown forth who Christ is, bears witness to Jesus, is the Father sent Jesus with signs. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
So the one that I possess is greater than John. The one I carry with me. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' present testimony, he's saying, is greater than John. As great as that testimony was, clear, abundant, bright, etc., sufficient, the testimony that I am now showing you by my works that the Father gave me to do is even more, is even more um, efficient than John's. Jesus is presently performing signs. Okay, the point of a sign, it's called a sign because it points to a reality. Okay, Jesus was not a circus act. There's bogus articles out there like, oh, was Jesus a kid performing all these miracles? No, he wasn't doing that. Jesus performed signs that the Father gave him to do for a purpose. What does a sign do? It communicates something, right? It, go this way. Drive this fast. Drive this slow. Have you ever seen these? In an emergency, tune your AM dial to, turn, you know, yeah, right. Like, we're ever going to do that, okay? A sign gives you information. Jesus is saying, the works that I'm doing are pointing you, saying, Messiah here, Son of God here. There he is, big arrow. So when he turns the water into wine, right? When he heals the lame man, we're going to see later in the Gospel of John, he raises Lazarus from the what? The dead. That's saying, God, this is God, because only God can do this. And he is presently performing these. He's doing it right in the midst of these Jews, that the works that I am doing. What happened after Jesus, in the beginning of, of John chapter 5, he heals the man that was, that was laying by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years as an invalid. And what happens? The Pharisees come up and, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Um, the man who healed me said to get up and carry my mat. Why are you telling people to break this? Like, are you kidding? The guy was there for 38 years and was paralyzed and now he can walk. This is amazing. Jesus' signs bear witness that the Father has sent him. He didn't come on his own. This rings back to verse 24b that Jesus says, if you dishonor me, you dishonor the Father. If you don't get what the signs are pointing to, brothers and sisters, listen to me. There is no other way to please God than through Jesus Christ. These Jewish leaders know that Jesus is performing these signs. They have heard. We see that Nicodemus comes in John chapter 3 and he says, Rabbi, who are you? Because we know that you must be a teacher sent from God because no one can do these things unless they are, right? We know that they've seen John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17 and they have ignored it completely. Matter of fact, they've been hostile to it. They've not ignored it. They've been hostile towards it. Spiritual blindness. The prophet John was a very significant witness. Jesus' signs were another very significant witness. But the most significant witness to the identity of Jesus himself is God's word. The scriptures. The scriptures. Look at verse 37. And he says this, And the Father who sent me has himself born witness about me. He's like, not only has John born witness about me, not only do my works bear witness about me, the Father himself who sent me bears witness about me. His voice, though, you have never heard. 
His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. God has testified for thousands of years in his word. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And he's progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament who this Messiah would be. And this is, he's spoken of the Messiah's identity, his character, his mission, all in the past. And this is what Jesus starts saying to them. You've never heard his voice. Ever. You've never seen his form, which potentially is like when Moses got to see God's back because he had a relationship with him. Jesus is like, Clearly, if you're not getting that the scriptures point to me, you've never heard God. If you miss me, you miss everything. God has shown his people the Messiah through his word. Through his word. Verse 38 is so clear. God's word reveals truth to us when it is in us. God's word abiding within us leads to belief in God's testimony. Do you understand this? It is not just enough to read these words and just believe them here. We need to believe these words and obey them here. And then when that's the case, we will recognize God's voice. We will understand him and when he reveals new truth to us as we continue to read his word. And this is what I want you to get, verse 39. This is like huge. God has not only shown his people Messiah through his word. God has centered his word around the Messiah. Did you you know that? All 66 books, they all, like the planets around the sun, are all about Jesus. Jesus is at the center. Jesus uh, tells us in Luke 24, 25 through 27, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he explains to them from the law, from the Psalms, from the prophets. You know what that is? The entire Old Testament. The things concerning himself. Did you know that the entire Bible is about the person of Jesus Christ? So do you know that if you miss Jesus when you read the Bible, you miss the entire point of the Bible? That's what he's telling these Jews. There is nothing insufficient with God's testimony to Christ. He gave his his people ample evidence. The problem is not with God, but with them. The problem is not with God, but with us. With us. And this is what's sad. God has revealed all this evidence. He tells us he sent John. He sent Jesus with miracles to point to the fact of who he is. He's been revealing him, his son in the Old Testament this whole time. And now the son is going to give his condemning testimony of the Jews. And hopefully not any of us. In verse 39 through 47. Jesus now flips it around. He's testified to himself. The father's testified to him. Now he's going to testify to them about themselves. We, 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 we read in John 2, 23 through 25, that Jesus does not need anyone to bear witness about us because he already knows us. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows everybody. And here's what he's going to tell them. Pharisees, if you remain in this place of unbelief, you are condemned. Why? John 3.18 says that the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, right? But why? The world was already condemned because they don't believe on the only Son sent from the Father. So let's see what his condemning testimony of the Jews is. Number one, they reject Scripture. They reject it. Now this would have shocked them. 
These are people, if you in this room read your Bible every day, every day, that's awesome because most Christians don't. Okay? They read the scriptures. They memorized most of them, the entire law, the Pentateuch, the first five books, memorized it. To, to have Jesus tell them that they've missed the point of scripture would have shocked them. Look at what he says in verse 39. He says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says you search the scriptures. You mine the scriptures. You read them all the time. You investigate them. Literally the Greek word means to make a careful or thorough effort to learn something. To examine, to search, to investigate. And you know what they were doing? They were trusting these scriptures themselves, but not the God of scripture. There's a very important distinction. There was a famous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. He was famous for saying, the more Torah you have, the more life you have. Meaning the more of the Torah you read, memorize, try to live your life after the precepts, the more life you get. Okay? Make sense? And this is what they believe. And Jesus is like, you, you search the scriptures thinking that is the scriptures themselves, the words that give you life. They point to me. I give you life is what he's saying. And you're missing it. You trust in yourself. They miss the entire point of scripture. The person. Imagine you enter into a relationship with somebody. Okay. And in that relationship. You write letters. Alright. Let's say young ladies. That a young man writes you like a beautiful Five page, or rather, no, let's flip that around. I don't want to talk to ladies right now. Guys, let's say you, the guys in here, yeah, y'all, y'all can do it one day. Write a nice long love letter to a lovely young lady, and you give it to her, and it's expressing the way you feel about her, how much you love her, and then she takes that letter, she makes copies of it, she puts it all over her bedroom, she, she frames it, right? She reads it every morning. Oh, just... Oh my goodness, I love, I, love this, I love this letter. And then every time after that you call her, hey, you want to, you know, what are you going to do today? Go bowling? Want to go bowling? <laughs> no, I'm going to be at home tonight. Oh, are you busy? Yeah, I'm reading your letter. Oh, okay, all right. Good letter. Okay. Then you call or text or whatever you do today and a couple days later, hey, um, you want to go to the football game tonight? No. Why? Why can't I'm reading your letter. And this goes on for months and months and months. And you're like, wait, you're obsessed with the letter and you never want to spend time with me. What in the world? When we read this, memorize this, obsess over this, learn this, and miss the person that this points us to so that we might know him and have life in his name we're doing the same thing. We laugh at that illustration because it's silly, but in reality, for these Pharisees and for those who do this, it's damning. They tragically miss life itself. They believe they have life, but they are dead because they refuse through unbelief to come to Jesus. They're spiritually dead. So I ask this question, how have you viewed and read scripture? Do you search it? And you should, that's a good thing. But if you do, do you see what God has revealed to you? The person of Jesus Christ. Or do you see a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws, a bunch of
bunch of good things, which scripture is full of truth, but the, the, there's a person who is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 1, he's called the Word. It's all about him. It's all about him. So they reject scripture itself, but they also reject the true Messiah and all, will receive false messiahs, Jesus says, verse 41 through 44. Look at this. He says, I do not receive glory from people. I'm, I'm not like that. I don't seek my approval from people. He's already said I got it from God. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He tells them, because of your unbelief, you're spiritually lost. So he told them because of their unbelief, they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually dead, you're spiritually lost. Jesus is like, I don't receive approval from people. You seek approval from people. You don't have the love of God within you. You're heartless towards others as they were towards the invalid who was healed. You're heartless towards God and his son. They reject Jesus, the true Messiah, but would rather have false messiahs. Why? Because these false messiahs, they come in their own name. They come boasting about themselves with their own authority. And he's like, you'll receive that person. This is, this is showing you, listen, this is how spiritually blind and dead they are. Look, Jesus is like, I'm coming with the witness of the Father himself. He sent John. He shows, he has my miracles. And he's given you his, the entire Old Testament that you search all the time. And you reject me. Someone will come in their own name. And that's it. And you'll welcome them. <laughs> Why? Because the one that comes in their own name is just like them. Just like them. They see glory for themselves. And that's exactly who the Pharisees wanted. There's actually a historical figure who lived about 100 years after Jesus' death. His name was Bar Kachba. Josephus uh, history talks about this. There were, he, he tried to lead an unsuccessful revolt in AD 132. And guess what? The Pharisees backed him completely. They all embraced him. And he came as a Messiah. And he was killed and did not rise from the dead. All of us naturally will receive people who, that are arrogant, who boast in themselves when they tell us what we want to hear. We are prone to believe lies as long as they fit our narrative. So relevant for today, is it not? It doesn't change, guys. People have a fixed idea in their minds as to what they want the world to be like. And they will believe and follow any person or idea that meets their own personal desires, which is exactly what the Jews did. Jesus did not fit their view of a Messiah. Here's their view of a Messiah. A guy who shows up in his own name and says, Oh, you, you religious leaders are great. Everyone, listen to them. I want your endorsement. Oh, thanks for your endorsement. Now let's kill Rome and let Israel reign again. Jesus came and challenged their false views of God, their false views of Scripture, their disobedience to Scripture. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, which they were appalled at, and performed countless signs showing that he is God, and they rejected him. Where does this rejection of God's Messiah lead the Jews and all of mankind who reject him? We'll close with this. He tells them, you will receive condemnation. Look at verses 45 through 47. 
He says this, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. How ironic. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He says, your unbelief not only spiritually blinds you, doesn't make you just spiritually lost, doesn't make you just spiritually dead. It will lead you to be spiritually damned for all eternity if you reject all these testimonies. Guys, I am God, he says. I am the Messiah. Here is all the proof. God himself is telling you through all these ways of who I am. And you refuse to come to me. And guess what? I don't even have to accuse you. Moses, the the one who penned the first five books of the Bible, he alone is sufficient to condemn you because all his words point to me and you won't believe them. All of us are accountable to the Father. He's the one who has sent the witnesses and has given his own. Scripture will condemn us if we refuse to believe it. We cannot pick and choose what we want to believe, right? It's all or nothing. This doesn't mean that we need to understand everything or that there is never any struggle, right? Jesus' own disciples and Peter struggle. Peter even says that Paul's writings are hard to understand. He's not saying that, but what he is saying is Scripture is consistent. And the consistent message is, it all points to me. And if we reject it, if we have unbelief in our hearts, it will lead to death. So, a couple questions. If you are in this room and you may have heard the gospel, you've heard testimony about who Jesus is a thousand times and you have refused to believe like these Pharisees. You find every excuse under the sun. Or maybe you're in this room and you think you know God apart from Christ. You need to turn away from your sin this very night. Embrace Jesus. Come to him. He says, come to me and I will give you life. You know what the saddest thing is? Jesus is not saying this necessarily in anger. He's saying this probably with tears. You refuse to come to me and have life. How tragic. I urge you tonight, come to know Christ. If you're a believer, continue believing in the one who has been sent by God. Continue walking with him and proclaiming this this Jesus to your friends, your teammates, your teachers. He He is the one this lost and dying world needs. They need to come to him for life. And this book is sufficient to bear witness to the Son of God. Let's pray.